Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep Christmas Eve, a short story by Guy de Maupassant. First published, I believe, in 1882 uh, in Le Galois, I think. Uh, on the 25th of December, which is interesting because it, it, it is set on, it says Christmas Eve in this. Uh, I think Christmas night might be the translation, though, and I'm not sure if that means the night of Christmas or the night before Christmas in French. Um, I didn't read it in French. I read it in the original uh, in the original English. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even look for it in French this time, so... Don't know. Uh, I, you know, I don't know if I told you this, but Guy de Maupassant is one of my favorite authors, and not just because I like to say his name. <laughs> Guy de Maupassant. Um, I think he's so funny, and I was trying to, I was trying to uh, read this in another way. I thought, well, maybe people could be offended by this story. Maybe this is a story of horrible people, horrible people doing horrible things. And I'm like, if you're offended by this. You should be offended by existing because it is so funny because of how horrible life is <laughs> and how funny people are. And even this character, uh, the main character, who I assume is just a, a very lightly cloaked Guy de Maupassant, is, is just, he, he delights me. <laughs> I love this story. And it is kind of a story of, of uh, delighting in people's misery but um, uh, yeah, I, I believe that saying, you know, you either laugh or you cry. And this is a laugh story for me, not a cry story. How did you find it? I'm, I'm sitting here, Jesse, with my mouth agape. Wow. Um, uh -oh. <laughs> I had not expected anything like that to be your reaction. I know that you are uncomfortable giving uh, summaries of stories, but could you tell me? You know, sort of in your own words, in a couple or three or four minutes, um, how you read this story? What story you read? Sure. Um, I, I I always consider myself fairly naive, and I think that's it. It serves me well because I I seem to be surprised by things. So I was surprised by what happened in this story. Um, it's it's about a writer who decided to write through the evening instead of go out to Christmas Eve dinner like everyone else in town. Um, but he finds the noises of the neighbors uh, makes him unable to write properly. So he he says screw it uh, and he calls his servant in and says okay go buy a bunch of food uh, bring it in and I'm gonna go out and get uh, somebody to eat it with me. So she goes out and buys, brings back the food, and lays it out in front of the fireplace, and he goes out looking for a dining companion. And to me, I didn't realize. I just thought, oh, that's so kindly, you know? I didn't think of any ulterior motive. And it, it, to me, this reads like a um, sort of a variation on uh, A Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens. It, it's, he's the Scrooge figure. Um, and he's decided to go out and buy the Christmas goose and, you know, be kindly to everyone. And I, I think that that is a way of reading it. Um, 
so he goes and he he looks for a uh, a woman to share his his uh, evening meal with, but he has very particular tastes. It turns out he love, loves stout women. He wants a, a veritable colossus of a woman. Um, he finds one, and she's delighted to come home with him and share his meal. They share the meal, but she has some maybe digestive problems, he thinks. She's a bit in pain. He asks her about it, and she says, you know, my life is none of your business. And he accepts that. But he's concerned, and uh, he puts her to... After the meal, she goes to bed. While he's cleaning up, uh, the groans get worse, and he returns to the bed to find that she's giving birth to a baby. (laughs) Right? Um, he flies madly about, uh, screaming uh, for help, uh, at which point many people come in, um, and he runs off to get a doctor after recovering himself and uh, not being able to deal with all the people flooding in. He, the doctor comes in, but by the time he returns, he's presented with a new child. And uh, that's the majority of the story, and it explains why the main character doesn't like Christmas Eve. Did wow. I miss anything? Well, <laughs> um, we we I think we read the same story. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> One of the things that I would say that's structurally important is that it's a front-frame story. Mm. That is, it begins with somebody. Um, offering to tell a story, or actually in this case, um, he is, he, some, someone says, tell us about it. And then what follows is the rest of the story, the story of the character who is indeed a writer. Um, and then it ends with the end of his story. We never get anybody else's reactions. Um, in my experience, there are different implications for how one reads the different kinds of framed stories. There's the full frame story where there's a a before and an after frame. And then there's the work within the work of varying length. Sometimes the frame is slender. Sometimes as with Hamlet's play within the play, Mm. the the frame is huge and the thing within it is small. Uh, Sometimes we have a back frame story, blah, 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 blah. And then I woke up, right? and then we have a front frame story like this one, which is, so tell, here's the story, and then you get the story and it ends. In a full, each one of them, no matter what else it's doing, is about education. It's about somebody learning something, right? That I'm gonna tell you a story so you're gonna learn something. In the case of the play within the play in Hamlet, um, it's, in a way, Hamlet's way of needling his uncle's stepfather. To catch the conscience of the king. Exactly. So he wants to see if if that will work. Uh, In a regular full-frame story, whatever else is going on, it's about the education of the outermost narrator. What can he learn, or she, from the story? In a front-frame story, the the person who occupies that position when the story ends is is us 
So it's about the education of the reader. And one of the ways you can tell that is that there's very little characterization given to the outer narrator. In fact, in this story, uh, someone just says, tell us about it mm-hmm. to to Henri Templier, the uh, the stout man who says he doesn't like Christmas suppers. Um, and so, you know, it's just an us. I took a look at a couple of other front frame stories like uh, James's The Turn of the Screw. Mm. And it also begins on Christmas Eve. And it also is a story unlike any other. <laughs> and it also says, tell us. So, again, there's this notion that at the end we're supposed to figure out what it means. I don't think that this is written, even though I understand that Maupassant is a writer and Henri Templier is a writer, um, I don't think one is exactly a stand-in for the other because I think that Maupassant has created a story we're supposed to be able to get something from. And it's not at all clear that Templier has exactly gotten it, but maybe he has. (laughs) I read it as a Christmas story. Mm -hmm. Um, Christmas is... uh, Christmas has a long history. It began as the as the church's way of co-opting Saturnalia, which was enormously uh, an enormous revel. Um, and for much of its history, Christmas was, in fact, quite raucous. In fact, it was banned in many, many places um, where Protestants were in control, uh, as Boston, for example. It was banned. You couldn't celebrate Christmas at all. It was illegal. Um for years and right into the 19th century. Um, so the party that's going on next door, that's keeping our, you know, Henri Templier awake, it might be a Christmas revel. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly when things go wrong with the woman he has and he pounds on the wall and asks for help. Um, in fact, what comes in is really a strange group of people. Right? My door was opened almost immediately and a crowd of people came in, men in evening clothes, women in full dress, harlequins, Turks, musketeers, and the inroads startled me so that I could not explain myself why they had thought that some accident would blah, 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 blah. So one way to read that is to say, this isn't what's going on at all. I mean, this is um, a metaphor for the whole world. Mm-hmm. This year, right? But another way to read it would be to say, uh, these people are all in costume. They're having a masquerade party next door to celebrate Christmas Eve. I think that the easy way to read this at first is to say it's the masquerade party. But at the end, when Templier comes back after having gotten the, uh, the doctor and finds that some boatmen are sitting there eating his oysters and working men are... People don't dress up as working men at the same masquerade party where others are wearing evening clothes and women in full dress. So I think, in fact, this is a metaphoric invasion of the world that's coming around to see what's going on with the birth of this child. (laughs) And it's Christmas Eve, for goodness sakes. Now, I also have got to say, I I don't know if you missed something, but I thought it was pretty clear from the very first occurrence that we're talking about a prostitute. Um, I got got that eventually. (laughs) eventually. Well, 
Uh, I'd like to, to go back to where it comes in. He asks his servant to go out and get food. It doesn't seem to bother him that she, he's sending her out on Christmas Eve. They go out and he orders up this sumptuous, sumptuous meal for two, not for her to join him. So this is for a party. This isn't for a religious celebration. Although her name is Angela. Mm -hmm. Right. So the angel goes and provides the food that this fellow orders up. His name is Henri Templier. Mm -hmm. Um, Henry means home ruler, a ruler of the home. Uh, It's a Germanic root. Templier is the French word for Templar. Mm -hmm. The Knights Templar have a long and interesting history, but what they are most known for are two things. Well, I guess I'd say three. One, they were um, soldiers of the Pope uh, during the Crusades. Uh, They were incredibly skillful fighters and are known to be you know, the, the, the really most efficient soldiers. Um, we see them with their, their white vestment and a, a red sort of Maltese cross on them. Um, they are well known. But although they are called mendicants, they are the poor soldiers in the official title of the order, they began to deal in money mm-hmm. and became an international banking organization, one source that I looked at said that they may be the first multinational company ever. They became enormously wealthy. And in fact, Philip IV of France owed them so much money, which he borrowed and borrowed and borrowed just to keep, you know, the country going, that he, Philip, pressured the Pope eventually to disband them Mm -hmm. so that he wouldn't have to pay back his debts to them. But they didn't completely go away when that happened in 1139. And many people, this is the third part of them, think of them as a secret society. So it's an interesting secret society that is both um, skillful, enormously skillful warriors for Christ, and also rapacious financiers. Now, this, this story with Henri, home ruler Templier, Henry Templar, is very much about Christmas Eve. We've got a woman who has no place to be, and she gives birth sort of accidentally in the manger. (laughs) Not to mention the mysterious father. (laughs) Exactly, mysterious father. And all these people come in, they're peeking in to look at what's going on. Right. So it's as if, right, in fact, at the end, when he says, well, I'm going to have to take care of this kid, I'm going to keep paying for his... uh, her, His her, her upbringing. I mean, she, her, she's her, a daughter. Her. Absolutely right. Um, he's taking on the role of Joseph. He's accepting the idea that um, he's going to raise this child that was just sort of miraculously delivered to him. Um, but there's this money thing throughout. So when Henri says to Angela, go out and you know get the dinner, um, he thought to himself, Paris is full of poor and pretty girls who will have nothing on the table tonight and who are on the lookout for some generous fellow. I will act the part of providence to one of them this evening, and I will find one if I have to go to every pleasure resort, and I will hunt till I find one to my choice. So I started off on my search. 
and he looks at them and he doesn't like the first one who's skinny and so on. Um, and, but he finally finds this one. She was superb, so beautiful that she astonished me and so stout that she fairly captivated me. Now, there is a com- there is a conjunction here between the wealth that Templar has and his ability to order up food and what a woman is, because he says it only remained for me after he's ordered up the meal to see her face, right? As he's looking now to find the right woman, and he thinks he spotted her from behind for a woman's face is the dessert. (laughs) So from the very beginning, because this guy has money, he can consume people as casually as he consumes food. He can just order them up. And so in that sense, it seemed to me uh, uh, for much of the story as if this were a critique of wealth, that here, even on Christmas Eve, the, the, the wealthy think nothing of others, but only of their own pleasure. Um, and they can get away with it because of the money. That's why pretty girls are so available. And in fact, she is available. But what then happens is that instead of saying you baggage, which he does call her, get out with your little with your mewling cat with this. Mm -hmm. He immediately acts the part of the Samaritan. That is, he's not Christian. He's not going to mass. He feels none of the things that a Christian is supposed to feel in the late 1882. What did you say? Yeah, 1882. He feels none of those things. He's not acting like a good Christian at all. Right. But he is completely honest. When the doctor comes and says, well, your wife, blah, blah, blah. He interrupts us. She's not my wife. And the doctor says, "Okay, your mistress then. This man is honest. He knows what he wants. He's willing to make clear exchanges. You need my money. Here you go. I, I don't know. You said that he he had decided to work that night. It's not clear. He says in the in the story, I had a big piece of work on. And it's not clear to me whether he was in the middle of writing something that was consuming his own interest or he wrote for money and himself felt that he had to work through the night uh, because he had this big piece of work he had taken on as a commission. Um, So the whole story sort of suggests um, to me a balance between uh, who has more or less economic power and how one uses that power more or less for the good of other people. And what I like about Templier is that although he seems to be uh, in the modern days, wealthy and not Christian, the, as I say, the order was disbanded by the Pope. In fact, he's like the Samaritan. I don't believe in Christ, so I'm going to have to help you. And, and he does. And he doesn't just help her that night. He makes a lifetime commitment to the child. Mm-hmm. So when he says, uh, for some reason, you know, she keeps coming out and she's watching me and she, <laughs> she loves me. I don't know if she really loves him or if she's just not eternally grateful to him because in a world that will find no place for her and her child, this one godless man will accept the responsibility of raising him. In fact, 
there is a lovely paragraph. He says, well, I could have sent her to the hospital. He said, you know, when she's sick, she needed to be confined. But, you know, what can I do? Send her to the hospital? Well, in the 1890s, charity hospitals, and that's what they were called, charity hospitals, is exactly where you would expect uh, a, a poor woman to go if she were ill. But in the 1890s, a poor woman going to the hospital after a difficult delivery the odds were good she'd die there. So he didn't feel that he could turn her over to charity, which were run by the church. He couldn't do that. He had to do it himself. So I find this a very lovely Christmas Eve story. It's a story in which a godless man says, I want to have nothing to do with New Year's Eve, with, mm-hmm. with Christmas Eve. I want to have nothing to do with it. And then he tells us why. And the reason is, because the last time he had something to do with it, he took on a lifetime obligation. But you notice that it is an obligation he has continued to take on. And I would also point out that we are told at the beginning of the story, the very first line, the Christmas Eve supper. He just says that. The Christmas Eve supper. And Maupassant provides a footnote. A great institution in France and especially in Paris, at which black puddings are an <laughs> indispensable dish. Well, black puddings in, in English are blood puddings, right? <laughs> These are puddings that are made from the blood of whatever animal you're sacrificing. Uh, one could hardly not, what, you, you could hardly find an image that looks more like um, having a party made out of the things that should have been sacred and church-like. So uh, I, I think this is a story, interestingly, um, balancing uh, materialism and spirituality and arguing that the church doesn't really help us here. What really helps us is having genuinely humane feelings and son of a gun, although he's not happy to admit it, the guy with really humane feelings is the writer. <laughs> that is Templar, Templier, who is, as you say, a reminder that there is a real man, Guy de Maupassant, behind this story. Mm-hmm. At least that's how I read it. So I agree with you that it's funny. But I don't think of it as a joke. I think of it as a very serious exploration of some significant issues winding up not like a Christmas carol, that is Dickens, not criticizing the person who doesn't get into the Christmas spirit, but criticizing the church and the materialist society for not really serving the human spirit. Yeah, and I think also, it, I, I, I don't put it so much on, on the, the, you know, the government or the, the society as much as here's a man who... He's a bachelor, uh, a, a Templar, you know, the the fighting monks, right? That He doesn't Well, they're need, not monks. They're not monks. Well, they, they were supposed to be, in the same way that the Knights Hospitaller were supposed to, right? And this is not a Hospitaller guy. This is a, a Templar guy. They were supposed to be, uh, swear to take no wives while they were overseas fighting their battles. This is a man who, who clearly could afford a, a wife and family. But chooses not to have one, and what does he want instead? He just wants a sexy lady, a nice big round, 
sexy lady. He finds one. He wants to pay for her. He wants to, you know, see her beautiful face, ask her about herself, and then bed her. And he gets he gets exactly what he didn't want. And no one forces him to not take her to the hospital. It is his own sense of, what am I to do? I've tried to avoid this situation my whole life. You know, he doesn't say that, but we can infer that, but by his sort of lifestyle um, and the fact that he's rejecting the the parties that everyone else is having with their with their families or their friends he yeah he is doing work at the beginning he says and i i love this distraction it, to me at the beginning um it this is a retelling kind of of uh, a christmas carol but without the ghosts the ghosts are his own conscience to, to me he says uh, this is on the first page um I grew restless at the thought of the gay and busy life all over Paris, at the noise in the streets, which reached me in spite of everything, at my neighbor's preparations for supper, which I heard through the walls. I hardly knew any longer what I was doing. I wrote nonsense, and at last I came to the conclusion that I had better give up all hope of producing any good work that night. So, for him, this and the fact that it's framed by, I, I hate... Christmas Eve. I never want to go to another Christmas Eve supper. Do not invite me to one. It, his, his resentment of having been trapped by his own conscience, right? Um, he didn't know what he was getting into. He just wanted a nice fat lady to bed. And what he finds is, oh, she's not even really fat. Right? <laughs> At the right. end, when, when, uh, when the, he's presented with, the, with the, the child, and I love that. I love all the people who show up, but says, as soon as they saw me, they raised a loud shout. A milkmaid, I love that, a milkmaid presented me with a horrible little wrinkled specimen of humanity that that was mewing like a cat and said to me, it's a girl, right? Well, the little stray cat that he's been forced to adopt, he didn't want it. Um, well, it came from a pregnant cat that he didn't really want to own that he just wanted to come in and pet for a while, right? Um, and when she is no longer uh, as the stout colossus that he wants, he describes her as, uh, well, she had grown as thin as a homeless cat, and I turned the skeleton out of doors. So he has no problem kicking out the lady, um, and probably rightly so. Uh, but he he oh, is, you say that but he lets her stay for six weeks exactly exactly <laughs> at some point you know this is not his wife um, <laughs> I don't think he ever got to bed her in the fashion that he would have preferred and he he is he he makes the statement that he's going to grow the girl is going to grow up who he sends by the way to Poissy, which is a suburb of France, uh, suburb of Paris, um, which is named after the fish, right? So um, we've got this this symbolism of the the cats and the fish and the milk and the right, and it's it's all this wonderful um, party atmosphere, and everyone's delighted, right? Everyone's happy except for the narrator who had tried to start start off. By making his own life just a sheer pleasure. And he he passes off that as, oh, well, I'll be doing them a favor. There's so many starving, beautiful ladies. They'll be delighted to come home with me. 
Um, so uh, when we do get that scene, the crowd, I made a note of all the different people who show up. There's men and women in evening clothes. Uh, uh, sorry, men in evening clothes, women in full dress, harlequins, which, eh, uh, I don't know. I think that's probably a, a stretch. Turks, musketeers, okay. They don't have muskets at this point in 19th century France. Um, a friar, <laughs> a friar shows up, and, and then there's the old doctor that he goes for. The lodgers from the room, from every floor in his building, four boatmen, and a milkmaid. This is, it is com comedy. It's like uh, those French farce comedies where, you know, people are running in and out of each other's bedrooms and sneaking in, and it's 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 so funny. Um, and and it's all because, you know, this selfish man was who's trying to avoid uh, the entanglements gets entangled, and there's nothing he can do about it. But there is, you see, he. This is uh, this is. This is the, the period of the Dreyfus affair. I mean, France is not does not treat kindly to those who don't have social position. Right. Uh, and we can tell this from before he even goes gets into his story. He says to the you know, he says, well, tell us about it. And the fellow says, well, then, listen, you remember how cold it was two years ago at Christmas, cold enough to kill poor people in the streets. The Seine was covered with ice. Whoa, wait a minute. That's it. Cold enough to kill poor people in the streets is a weather report. Yeah. It's not about a human tragedy. So there's something in the society as a whole into which this guy fits that really doesn't care about those who are, as we would say, disenfranchised, the poor, the marginalized. And when that crowd comes in, the one who actually hands him the child is the milkmaid. Right. Well, I know where you find milkmaids. You find them in barns. Mm -hmm. Right. Where you find the cows being milked. Right. This is a a version, a comic. And I agree with you there. A comic version of the story of Jesus's birth. Mm -hmm. This guy had every choice. I mean, there is a charity hospital. The story reminds us of that. Sure. But he says, well, I couldn't send her there. That would be inhumane. And he sends the child away to be taken care of. Well, okay, but once the mother is healthy again, there's not a reason in the world why someone could not quite legitimately say, I'm going to reunite the child with the mother. You know, it's the mother's responsibility. But he doesn't. He's he trapped doesn't. by his conscience. That's my point is is that, yes, he, he has tried to offload his need to take care of his fellow man, and, you know, just make it a, a, a financial transaction. But when presented with a, a woman giving birth in his bed, he no one forces him other than himself, his own conscience. And he hates that, right? That he's he's controlled by this. But he takes on a lifetime responsibility. Of course. And he takes on a lifetime responsibility that is cloaked in a lie. And the reason that it's a lie and this, of course, is part of a jibe at Christianity, is that he knows darn well he's not the boy's father, and the boy's father cannot be found. I mean, sorry, the girl's father. You, you, the girl's I thought father. you were talking about Jesus there for a minute. No, no, well, yeah, that's that's what I'm trying. That's my point, is that Joseph, you know, yep. we like to think that Joseph knows that, Mary, you know, who the father, you know, there's another way to look at this. Sure. Um, and 
this guy, he could have said, right, this man whose conscience drives him, he is, that's why I use the, the term the Samaritan. He's the guy who really is good, regardless of the materialism and the, the useless church and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and a, a Christmas revel instead of a, a sense of, of holiness and no mass in this Christmas. Um, he could have said, you know, I'm taking care of this kid as an act of charity. He could say, I found you on my doorstep of the girl. But no, he's saying she's he's letting her grow up thinking that he's her father. Why? Because if he turned her over to the mother, then it would have to become clear that the child was a bastard. Mm-hmm. And he does not want the child to feel uncared for and unloved. A single father whose wife dies in childbirth can have a wet nurse raise the child and with money mediating it be what this society views as a good father. Mm -hmm. In this society's terms, he's the best person there. The friar doesn't know what needs to be done, (laughs) but this guy does. Yeah, that's why I love this story so much. Well, it's only a couple of days after Christmas with us recording it. Eventually, we'll get to hear it come back to us over the air, and then we will realize that, Christmas or not, there's always more to say. (laughs) And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. Thank you.